For those of you worshiping at home, we had a little bit of sound challenges, but they're working, everything's working now. So that's why those of you here saw me kind of scampering in the back. We're learning our system as we go and, uh, and learning little quirks that uh, sometimes have to be figured out. So we're in good shape now. Ah, hopefully you were listening to that text from Marcia. There were some very interesting things in there, and we're going to talk about them um, a bit right now. Please join with me in prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your word, even when your word brings difficult words to us. We ask your blessing on this time, on our hearing of your word and our understanding of it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So there are certain texts of the Bible, <coughs> certain biblical texts that preachers often choose to ignore. They will uh, look at them when they come up in the lectionary and they will say, well, what are my other, what are my other options? Or maybe they'll decide at that point, well, we're not going to, uh, we're going to deviate from the lectionary today. They're inconvenient or even uncomfortable or disturbing texts. We, those of us in the church industry, we, we seem to spend a lot of time trying to filter the word or distill the gospel and scripture so that it fits into an expectation of hope and positivity. We sometimes are peddlers of positivity, and while I know that's what people often want, it's really not always what we have in the good news. And I think that I perhaps, maybe even too much, love positivity and hope. And I do think that they're at the core of the gospel. But there's so much more. There's so much more to the messiness of what happens when the divine God, this unknowable, unimaginable creator of the universe, decides to do the unthinkable and condescend and become human. Unimaginable and also quite difficult to understand. The earliest church leaders, they argued and even fought over the mystery. And for the last 2,000 years, people like you and me have struggled to understand what did it mean for Jesus to be fully God and fully human. The person of Jesus and the glimpse at the divine come together in the Gospels. This is where we're introduced to this divine person. They come, they come together in, a, in the Gospels in an attempt to show us something of the mystery. And I've mentioned this before, but one of the helpful things about having four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in our Bible, and by the way, there are other Gospels out there. I wonder if you knew that. There are other Gospels, and they didn't make the cut into our canon, but they're, they're very interesting. But we have these four Gospels in our Bible, and this is helpful because there are four different angles, four different ways that we're able to look at Jesus. Different voices, right? Different audiences with different ways of painting the picture of the incarnated one, Jesus. And there's something else interesting and important to consider. These gospel accounts, they each include and leave out certain things. The writers, and then the people to whom they passed down the Gospels, they made decisions, and they were guided by the Holy Spirit about what to include and what not to include. When you pick up a Bible today, 
It's the product of many years of of work, of many years of oral and written tradition, and also of study and of editing. You know, there were multiple manuscripts, early manuscripts of these Gospels, and sometimes they would say slightly different things. And they had to make a choice, which is the most reliable? Which version do we use? And this especially became true when, when one or more manuscripts contained sections that don't appear in other ancient manuscripts. And so, what happens is that in all reality, the, the people who orally passed along the gospel messages and those who wrote them down, all of these people at each of those stages had the opportunity to decide what would be included. And so I'll make a bold proposition today, and one that has personally challenged me to be more open to trying to understand a more broad realm of Scripture. The bold proposition is this. The writers of the gospel included each story, each description, each detail, each interaction for a reason connected to their whole mission of conveying the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So going back to my observation that I'm often inclined to to be a bearer of what I see as this narrow realm of good news and hope, I look at the gospel text sometimes with difficulty seeking to find the good news. What it's come to help me recognize is that good news can be difficult news. Good news can be challenging news that requires some study, some wrestling, and maybe even some pain. And this morning's text is one that, like I said, many preachers simply ignore. But even worse than ignoring it, many preachers try to sanitize it, to take out the difficult parts, to to explain Jesus or make excuses for Jesus and his behavior. This morning, though, we're taking a little bit of a different tack. We're going to look at this text, and I'm going to offer some interpretation and contextually relevant information. And then the invitation for us, for you, for each of us, is to ask ourselves the question about the good news for our lives today. What is the good news? And to ask a second question, one that might always be at the forefront of our minds when we approach Scripture. This is the question. How might my life, my choices, my living, my perspective on the world be changed or transformed by my hearing of this text? So we not only hear the challenging text, but we then proclaim it. We live it and claim it as good news for God's people. Okay, so this morning's text, this morning's lesson from Mark's Gospel As I mentioned to the kids, it comes right after Jesus has a confrontational exchange with the Jewish religious leaders. Jesus is frustrated with them because their focus has become on religious purity, specifically on ethnic practices related to what people wear, what people eat, how people uh, live, all of these things. And, And basically, The Pharisees were chastising Jesus and his followers, Jesus and the disciples, for not following firmly to these traditional laws. And Jesus pushes back with some pretty strong words, and he says to them that serving God isn't about these practices. And this shocks them completely, because for them, the practices, the rules, are 100% about what following God is. And he says that these dietary restrictions and all these cleanliness rules, they're, they're not what matter. What matters is what's on the inside, from within the human heart. 
Jesus seems less worried about these cultural norms and about the purity rules that were occupying the leaders and more about the nature of the heart and how the inside is lived out. After Jesus leaves these religious leaders, and and likely, by the way, he's setting himself up for big trouble with these these leaders. They're the powerful ones. And this is uh, one of the earlier texts in Mark's gospel where where Mark is, is laying out for us that Jesus is poking the bear. He's poking the bear, he's kicking the nest, whatever analogy you want. And this is, is one of these early ones where he's setting himself up for what's going to come. So after he leaves them, Jesus and the disciples, they travel into a land that, is, that was seen as an impure territory. And it's interesting because by setting these stories next to one another, after he's just said all these things about uh, the religious purities and the, the, um, the ways that, that people were being set apart and discriminated against, you would think that Jesus is going to be making his point even stronger by going to, into this impure land and, and to essentially show, not just say, that these rules are worthy of rejection that he's going to take it one step further and go to a place that is seen by them and by most Jews as impure. But Jesus is also tired. Perhaps at the end of his rope and and ready for a break, he goes to this foreign land and he finds a house. And I wonder if you heard this in the text. It says that he didn't want anyone to know he was there. Just wanted to get away. But instead of being left alone... A woman, a local woman, comes to him. She's a Gentile, a non-Jew, and she's coming to see Jesus alone as a woman, unaccompanied by her husband or any other man, and she initiates a conversation with Jesus. There are a lot of layers of cultural taboo here. This interaction really shouldn't have been happening, but it's apparent from our reading of the text that this woman is desperate. Her daughter is troubled, it says in our text. The text says that the woman begs Jesus to cast a demon out of her daughter. The daughter's not there. This woman comes to Jesus alone. But this isn't that strange of a request. Many people have come even to this point to Jesus to ask for for demons to be cast out, and Jesus has, has done it. They've come to Jesus asking for healing, and Jesus has done it. And, and not just Jews, but also, like this woman, Gentiles, foreigners, people who are ethnically different. But in this case, Jesus turns down the request. He says, he says no. And what's strange is that nowhere else has Jesus, up to this point, said no when someone, a Jew or a Gentile, asks for healing. But Jesus goes a little further, and, and you may not have heard this in the text, but this is a, this is a very powerful part of this text because he doesn't just ignore her. He says, he says no, and then he uses what is indisputably, there's just no way around this, he uses an ethnic slur to describe her. He calls her a dog, which frankly isn't much different than calling someone a dog today. And we all know how that comes out when we call someone a dog. This was a term that was used by Jews to describe non-Jews. 
And specifically what he says is that the children, or his own people, the the Jewish people, should receive the benefits of God first. And that it isn't fair to take the children's food, God's blessings, and give it to the dogs. So, you see what I mean when I say there's a very complicated and frankly disturbing situation playing out here. Jesus, a a Jew living in a racially and ethnically diverse and very tense and conflicted environment, is being faced with this situation where the question really is, who should receive God's blessings? And Mark's audience, and throughout the first century of of Christianity, the, the, uh, the people, so many other people as well, were struggling with this question. There was a lot of confusion in the early church about who was to receive the blessings of Jesus. When we, when we look at the letters in the New Testament, much of the argument there was, was asking the same question. Who is to receive the blessings of Jesus? Whether, whether we're ultimately looking at salvation or healing or any of the, the number of other ways to describe being the, the beneficiary, the recipient of Jesus, The question among the early church centered often around whether Jesus came for only the Jewish people or for everyone. In in Matthew's gospel, and, and Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish, Jesus specifically says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Strong language. But in Mark's gospel here, that's not actually what Jesus says. Jesus says, the first are the children. First come the children, the Jews. Then come the Gentile. So Jesus is in one breath leveling this significant insult at the woman, pointing out her ethnic separateness with this this slur, and then also seemingly prioritizing treatment of one group over another. At first glance, it's shocking. It's shocking, and it it should be. But without a blink, without, without even pausing, while I'm still reeling in this confusion and the disturbing treatment of this woman, the woman herself responds without a blink. And she begins this rhetorical spar with Jesus. She comes back at Jesus and says, yes, fine. She doesn't challenge him, but she asks again for what she wants by honing in on what Jesus says. She responds, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her response, though, it's not, a, it's not merely an argument. There's something more going on in this moment. Something more that seems to strike Jesus. She doesn't fight back. She doesn't try to even change her status or question what Jesus has said about her. Instead, the woman accepts where she is and she lowers herself. The the imagery of the story, it says that she lowers herself right to one beneath the table. She basically says, even the crumbs from under the table. She humbles herself before Jesus, and in doing so, I wonder if you saw what happened. He's dramatically changed in that moment. 
He's, he's persuaded by what he says is the word that she's said. Her word. And he announces in that moment that her daughter is healed. Now, in the next few months, we're going to, uh, we're going to see that this moment fits so closely with, with what much of Jesus is going to say in Mark's gospel. And it all kind of culminates in Mark chapter 10, verse 31, where Jesus says that many who are first will be last. And we're familiar with this, right? And the last will be first. There's no good way for me to get around the offensiveness of what Jesus says. Or even the offensiveness of a woman who accepts the slur that Jesus throws at her. I'm not willing to explain it away culturally, and I don't think Jesus needs me to defend him. Actually, I'm pretty confident that I'm the last person Jesus needs to defend him. Throughout the Gospels, though, throughout the Gospels, Jesus offends a lot of people. We don't like to think of it that way. We think of offending people as a bad thing. But Jesus offends the religious leaders. He just did it in that text that, that we talked about. He offends his family, his mother. He offends his disciples. He offends people's expectations of what the Messiah will be. Professor Clifton Black, a professor of mine from seminary, writes that if we too are not gobsmacked, it's a safe bet that we have domesticated Jesus and have neutered the gospel. Black suggests that this text and, and these other texts where Jesus offends people might just be setting us up for the most offensive part of the story, the disturbing death of Jesus on the cross, death of, of the God of creation by the most humiliating means. This was an offensive idea of how God could be treated. The expectations, as I say, of a Messiah were so different from who Jesus was that Jesus is continually throwing a wrench into who people think he should be. So I've, I've said it and I've promised you multiple times that I wouldn't try to explain away this text and that I wouldn't defend Jesus or even try to show that it isn't as bad as it sounds. You know, for a long time, people would, would use this text and say, well, he was just saying that, that they're like a nice little puppy dog. That's what I mean by, by the attempts to water down this text. But what I do want to do is go back to those questions I posed at the beginning. I think it's helpful for us to look at what happens next in the gospel. This moment, this exchange with this woman who stands up to Jesus is a turning point in the gospel of Mark. Immediately after his interaction with her, in our text that we heard, later in that text, Jesus cures a man who cannot hear or speak, and then a man who cannot see, and then he feeds 4,000 people, and this all happens in rapid succession right after this, and while Mark never mentions the ethnic composition of these people, all of this happens in the land of the Gentiles. And we're left to wonder about who Jesus was helping in those moments. The persistence of that woman, it seems to have an immediate impact on Jesus and how Jesus widens the reach of his impact on the world. 
It begins with a widening view of God's embrace of humanity, a widening view that reaches its widest reach on the cross and in the empty tomb. A widening, a a more expansive understanding of what this whole incarnation of God means, what, what the invitation to the table means, of what God's desires for humanity are. And all of this seems to hinge when this woman sees something different in Jesus. Something worth putting herself out there. Putting herself out there to dare to believe that what she has heard and learned about Jesus might just be true. And to push back, to push back even when that ethnic wall seems to be keeping her away from Jesus to dare to believe that what she has heard and learned about Jesus might just be true. The message of Jesus isn't just some idyllic and comforting and warm feeling, but it's this complex, mysterious, fully divine, and fully human Savior that is seeking to disrupt our lives and all of our expectations. And for me, at least, there's another message of good news here. And and like I said, I do think you need to ask yourself, whenever we're looking at a text, what is the good news for you? But for me, there's a difficult good news message in this text about my own expectations and about who who I might be excluding from God's table without sometimes even realizing it. Where are the voices that I don't hear? the ways that I don't expect God to be working around me? And how can I be more open to hearing the voices of the marginalized or the ones who have that transformational word within them, that word of the woman to Jesus, that word more deeply revealed, that word that more deeply revealed the good news, revealed the deeper implications of the gospel? You see, friends, this text is a difficult one. But it isn't only difficult because of what it says about Jesus. It's difficult because of how it convicts me, just like our text last week from James, to examine how I look at others. Others I see in the church, but others I see on the street, others I see in the grocery store, others I see in the world, others I see in, in uh, my life. How I see others. And it's difficult because it convicts me to look at it and to consider how I look at the world, how I see the world, and how I might change and grow and seek to be one who, like Jesus, had an ever-broadening, ever-widening love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.